everyone, this is Imogen Baxter, and you're listening to Square Peg's Founder Stories podcast. I am so thrilled that you've joined today's episode because it's with the three founders of our newest portfolio company, Nira. We just led their $7 million Series A, investing alongside Kim Jackson at Skip Capital, and we are delighted to spend today's episode exploring why. First, a reminder that if you haven't signed up for our weekly newsletter, All Signal, then I suggest you shimmy on over to spc.vc to get a weekly email from me with the best tech news, insights from the team, and long-form content. Last week's long-form content was written by my brilliant colleague, James Tynan, who led the investment in Nira as it happens, and his article was about the critical but underappreciated skill of energy management and why that's more important than time management. The article is hugely personal to James and his experience of living with a handful of autoimmune diseases and is genuinely implementable for people just like you and me. So if you haven't signed up to All Signal, you should, but also you must just go Google James Tynan and energy management and it'll immediately improve your week. That is a promise. And today, we're talking about something equally close to James's heart, and that is Nira. Okay, so as I see it, you can kind of divide the world into two halves. Half one is made up of all the things that, when they're at their absolute best, they are absolutely, unmissably obvious. I put things like a Sunday roast or phenomenal events or art of most forms into this category. And half two is made up of all the things that when they're at their absolute best should be completely invisible. My favorite example of this is the bin or the trash can because it still feels invisible even though it's connected to a wildly complex waste machinery. And actually for the most part, infrastructure largely falls into the invisible half because we only really notice it when there's a problem. But every year, hundreds of billions of dollars of equipment such as power lines, underground cables, and mobile phone towers, the infrastructure behind our modern day lives, needs to be installed, maintained, and updated. And that work requires deep understanding of where all the existing equipment is, how it operates, and how it will be affected by things like weather, vegetation, construction, and decay. With recent floods swamping Australia, wildfires burning across Australia and California, and severe weather events causing Texas to go without power and communications, it's clearer than ever that how this work gets done, how our infrastructure is maintained or updated, can mean lives lost or saved. So while infrastructure is often invisible, it's obviously important. Unfortunately, Doing this maintenance work, upgrading, building, maintaining infrastructure such as cables and power lines and telephone towers has historically been pretty slow and expensive. And this is where Nira comes in. Nira, N-E-A-R-A, creates a digital twin of an infrastructure network that looks like a futuristic 3D world, but is so accurate, it can be used for engineering-grade analysis, helping infrastructure owners plan, maintain, and expand their networks. 
It's working with mostly all of the major electric network utility companies in Australia, and it's growing its team to help every major infrastructure organization manage their needs across the globe. On today's episode, we'll hear the founding story of Nira's three founders, Daniel, Karam, and Jack. And it's worth mentioning right up front that this team is hiring some pivotal roles right across the commercial team in marketing, comms, and sales in both Australia and the US. So you should let the brightest in your life know that there's a couple of extraordinary roles available. But for now, we're going to start with Dan, Nira's CEO and engineer. Well, I was born and raised in Sydney, pretty much. I lived in Greece for a couple of years. So that was actually a very enriching experience. And I have some friends from there that I actually still keep in touch with. Actually, one of them is uh, helping us with SEO. <laughs> some, someone I met from primary school when I was in, when I was in Greece. Yeah, my mum's my a high school art teacher. My dad's a physicist. He, he invented a type of microscope. So if you're into microscopes, his name might have come up. So I guess I had pretty good different kinds of inputs growing up, which I'm very grateful for. In terms of like how how I got into this career path, I get I think it always starts with like you wanted to make computer games. That's how people get into coding if they if they get into it in high school. So it's like I want to make my own games. It's like asking you know I'd ask my granddad how do I make my own computer games you know and he's he oh you need to learn programming but he didn't know anything about programming but so somehow I figured out how to do it and then I just really got into it because it's a very like it's obviously like super nerdy in, in one sense but it's also very kind of fun and creative because you pretty much have full reign to do anything you want within the the box I suppose within that digital realm and so that was kind of a fun thing but it wasn't a career ambition because it just wasn't like the thing to do so towards the end of high school oh what should I do I mean career-wise obviously software is pretty good now it's like a, it's a respectable choice and uh it was something I really enjoyed doing and so it all it all panned out quite well. I often hear software engineers talk about the enjoyment they get from needing to be both logistician and creative genius when they build software. Dan is, if you haven't already noticed, remarkably humble, and he ended up working as a senior software engineer at Google under Lars Rasmussen, the famed founder of Google Maps and Wave. And Wave is what Dan ended up working on. After Google, he bounced between roles at Canva and Dropbox before launching his own consultancy to build complex technical products for startups when off-the-shelf solutions wouldn't cut it. So that's Dan, the engineer. Now let's meet Jack Curtis. I took the far less creative and enlightened path. Uh, unfortunately, it took me a while to realize what the more enlightened path looked like. Uh, but from a young age, I like to talk a lot and argue a lot, which will come as a shock to everyone. And I was very myopically focused on being a barrister because I thought that was the profession that best suited what I enjoyed doing. And so probably from the age of about seven, that was the goal was to end up being a barrister. I think I just understood what they did at a very shallow level which was they spoke in front of people and they made arguments in front of people. And unfortunately, that trait manifested in me from a young age and I never quite exercised the learning agility to move beyond it. And it kind of compounded through school. And so I ended up doing the less creative choice of going to law school and then joined a law firm uh, in litigation with a view of that being the stepping off point to going to the bar and then had this quite pivotal moment where 
at the law firm I was working at, they make you do a different practice group. And I said, no, I want to stay in litigation. I have no interest in anything other than that. I'm going to the bar. And they said, bad luck. You're going to work for this partner in the corporate department. You're doing that for a year. And fortunately, that partner in that group was probably the most pivotal mentor I've had as it relates to my career uh, for two reasons. One, he had a very good and bad habit of dropping people in the deep end straight away. And so the first meeting I had with him, he took me into this meeting with all these Sony music executives. And this was about my first day of working with him. And he said, this is Jack. And then he left the room. And I'm pretty sure what happened over the next hour in that meeting room was the greatest pile of garbage that meeting room had ever listened to. Uh, but I think when I think about what's probably been the most instrumental impact in my career in that first 10 years was having the good fortune of working for people who dropped me in the deep end all the time and teaching you autonomy and responsibility and having to figure it out. And so even though it was in a far more kind of traditional career path, I got fortunate or was fortunate to work with people who enabled that. And then that guy helped me move to New York pretty quickly. And I went to work for a law firm there where I was sitting around the introduction table and the introduction went somewhere like this. Hey, I'm Chris Harvard. Hey, I'm Sarah Yale. Hey, I'm so-and-so Harvard. And it was Harvard, Yale, Harvard, Yale, some random guy from Oxford or some university you've never heard of either. And then I said, hey, I'm Jack. I'm from the University of Technology, Sydney. And it was like crickets <laughs> around the room. And I was like, I'm very out of my depth here. Um, but that turned into a similar experience where the partner I worked for there actually helped create the junk bond with Michael Milken and same kind of thing. And then at a certain point, I realized that advisory probably wasn't what I wanted to do long term. And as much as I had this good opportunity and went on to do that in finance for a little while, what I really wanted to do was work on the commercial side, the operational side, actually be involved in the building of businesses and growing with those businesses and what you do year one, you get to see play out 10 years later. Uh, and so ended up in the kind of power renewable energy industry um, and spent uh, 12 years at a company focused on that, which I really enjoyed. Uh, and then uh, realized that being in a business that has a very significant growth trajectory ahead of it um, mattered a lot to me. Uh, being in a business that forced you to be agile around what you learned and not uh, be in a state where you feel like you're phoning in what you do was pretty important. And so I had the good fortune of meeting Dan and Karim and thought the product was pretty bang on, particularly relative to the macro opportunity. And they were seemed like very nice people and fortunately have proven to be very nice people. And so that's how I ended up here. Jack's 12 years at the energy and power company was at first solar, a $9 billion market cap global leader in solar energy. He was the international senior vice president at First Solar, focused on the commercial and operational side of the business and responsible for establishing and growing most of First Solar's international markets. Important. So that's Jack, litigator turned business builder. You remember Dan, our software engineer, and now it's time to meet the final piece of the puzzle. Karam. I grew up in India and um, you know, my dad was an engineer. Um, my mom used to teach at university, so I had sort of, you know, sort of similar background. We used to move around a lot. So every two or three years, you know, we would actually move to new places just because of my dad's profession. And plus my dad did like, you know, five or six different types of engineering. 
Um, so everything from aeronautical to mechanical. From, from a sort of an early age, I was exposed to just having to lift and shift things or move around or try, try different things. Uh, and then, you know, I came to Australia when we were 16. Um, and if I was growing up in India, I probably would not have done IT at all. Like I was growing up, I was like, I would definitely not do IT, you know, because everybody in India was doing it. Um, so I came here and then picked it up as one of my subjects. It might be cool to make a few games, made a few websites. Um, and, and this was actually before the dot-com bust. Literally in 2000 or something, you know, people were willing to pay you money to build websites. So I was like, hey, maybe something would come out of this stuff, right? So um, started doing that. But just before I finished uh, year 12, we had the dot-com bust. Um, and then I was like, okay, I do not know what to do now. So I ended up doing commerce and uh, engineering or software engineering at uni just to sort of hedge my best um, and sort of, sort of went from there. My first true job in IT, um, you know, I randomly rocked up to somebody that was recruiting for graduates, gave them my resume. They called me to meet somebody um, and then the guy gave me a job. And I was like, okay, I'm not even sure what I'm meant to do. Walk in, he explains the problem to me and I'm like, okay, well, I'm here for six months. I guess if I learn all of this stuff, maybe I can do this. And then at the end of the meeting, he says, so that's what you'll be doing the first month. And then I'll tell you what comes after that later. Yeah, so, so, so let's just say it was a good learning experience, as Jack was saying, you know, like being thrown into the deep end and sort of being given the opportunity. Um, I, I really enjoyed that. So Karam is Nero's product lead. He's worked as a software engineer too and led major technology teams to deliver multi-million dollar projects at a major Australian bank, Westpac. But it's always been the product and development side of the business that has kept him fascinated. So that's the three. Daniel, Jack, Karam. Three different paths, different upbringings and life lessons and aspirations. Now, how founders find each other has always interested me. And while I've heard all kinds of founder meeting stories, I've never heard this one. Here's Dan. Well, uh, I met Karim through cooking. We cooked together. It, it was funny. So we, we were both involved in this comedy sketch show at uni. And so what happened was, well, uh, I think, Karim, you'd, you'd already you'd been in the cast like the year before, that sort of thing. And I, and I sort of got on, on the bandwagon late. Like I, I rocked up and was like, hey, what can I do? It's like, well, cast is full, tech crew's full. I guess you can join the cooking team. So I joined the cooking team and Karen was the boss of the cooking team. And so we cooked for the cast and crew every night. Incidentally, that's also where I met my wife uh, through the cooking team. So thank God for that cooking class. <laughs> I know, right? It's because of, and as you know, she's um, the engineer who designs power lines, which is why this whole thing started in the first place. So. So it's all thanks to cooking. We'll come back to this component of Nira's origin story with Dan's wife, Min Chung. But for now, I'm just clarifying that this cooking activity was all part of the Computer Science and Engineering Review at the University of New South Wales, which is a comedy sketch show. All of the shows have punny names like Starkey and Hash and Code Busters. And having watched a bit of it online, I can tell you that it is a sometimes funny, sometimes terrible example of the comedy craft. Yeah, it's a comedy sketch show. Yeah, we, we try to be funny. Yeah, I wonder, I wonder if I uh, went back to it now and, and watched it. I, I, think, I think it was legitimately funny, at least, yeah, at least my memory of it. But it was kind of like a microcosm of this thing in a sense. Like this, so the, the year after, Karim and I actually produced the show. So we had to go and get sponsors. Maybe that's analogous to getting investors, you know. 
So we got our $5,000 Microsoft sponsorship. That was a big deal. And our $1,500 Accenture sponsorship and, and that's sort of thing. So, you know, it was, you know, we were organizing the teams and the cast and crew and all that sort of thing. So it was, it was a good, good fun experience. And so, yeah, that's, that's how I met Karen. And so we, we, I guess we worked together in that capacity and then we kept in touch over the years. And Even on cooking, like we didn't poison, nobody had food poisoning. So we were very impressed with that. Um, nobody complained or threw the food out. So that was, you know, really good. Um, and yeah, look, I, like, like producing was, was really good fun for, for me as well. I realized I'm not the most creative person when it comes to writing scripts and stuff like that. But, you know, at least we can organize and build and, and do the other things. Um, yeah, so it was actually, yeah, same as Dan. Like, I look back to that quite fondly. Building Nira wasn't exactly the next step right after cooking together. As I mentioned, all of the Nira founders went off and had pretty fulfilling careers before founding Nira. Dan and Karam both worked in software after university, and at the time for the idea Nira came about, Dan was working at a software development collective he co-founded called Helix. The point was to be the opposite of cookie-cutter projects. That's the point of Helix, like not cookie cutter projects, not just bums on seats, but to work on challenging projects with people that we want to work with. That goes both with the engineers working at Helix and the people that Helix works with, right? So through that, I've met a lot of interesting people, you know, doing startups and learnt about their different domains and how they think about their things. And and um, there's a lot of cross-pollination of ideas and best practices and that sort of thing. I mean, this is probably one, one of the reasons that Nira is, is so exciting for me personally. In addition to real-world aspects and solving those physical problems, like I do like variety and this thing that we're doing now with Nira, it, it has a lot of, a lot of variety like in, in all different aspects. There's so many different problems to solve. Now, Nira began life as a conversation and then a side project and then a slightly more significant project of Dan's and it's all thanks to his wife, an electrical engineer who leads teams of engineers to design power line infrastructure. It's not like I was sitting at home and I realised that the infrastructure industry needed a next level digital twin or something. It evolved over time. So she was starting her own business uh, and she was just talking about the software she had to use and it just kind of seemed a bit uh, suboptimal, I suppose. So you, like if you put cables in the ground or you put utility poles up and string cables, like that has to go through an actual engineering design. You can't just do whatever. I mean, maybe you can, but I don't know if you've seen what power lines look at in, in some other places in the world, it gets pretty insane. So, you know, there's a lot of safety issues and you know, fires could start and things could fall down and power could get cut. And so, so you need to do it properly. It needs to go through proper design. And so the fun project was just to make a web-based uh, CAD tool that did all the things that, that one would need for utility power line design. And so we made that and um, put that up as a it's kind of like a SaaS tool for people to use. And then it started getting traction. But what really happened was we got we, we won a tender with Essential Energy, which was our first sort of enterprise customer. And they're an actual asset owner. They're not a consultancy, they actually, you know, own the one and a half million poles in New South Wales and pretty much like by area most of the most of the infrastructure in New South Wales, right? And it was through working with them and collaborating that kind of my eyes open to the bigger picture of like what could actually what was actually needed in this industry. So it was sort of like an evolution of understanding because yeah, I wasn't in this industry originally. I came from Google as a software engineer and doing various MVPs for different startups, you know 
yeah, this is this is another interesting challenge, another domain. It's like, oh, I'm going to learn about this and how this works, and so it takes a while uh, to build up that knowledge. It's just kind of endearing, I suppose you could you could describe it the way all the different customers we worked with, like how excited they were about this thing we were building. So originally, this was just a side project for Dan, alongside Helix, working with his co-founder, Jeeva Suresh. But seeing the kind of real impact he was having, and knowing how vital infrastructure is to all of us, he made the call in 2018 to focus his energy entirely into Nira full-time. I sort of was chatting with Karim as well, and we was talking about how I was thinking of raising funds and, and, and you know, hiring a full-time team and going full on with this. And uh, yeah, and so that's that's kind of how it went. And I, Jeeva continued to look after Helix and I went full time on this. It was a very tough decision. And it's also worth, I, I feel like it, it probably, like it would have happened a lot sooner. Do you know what I mean? If it wasn't for the fact that, you know, I guess Helix is my baby as well, you know, and I've been working on it for, for a long time. Um, and to his credit, it was, it was Jeeva who suggested, cause we we're always discussing everything and I was explaining to him, you know, what a few customers are saying, and you know, this, that, and some of the potential of this and that. And it was kind of a Jeeva who said it, you know, that, you know, you should really do this because it's a massive opportunity and it'd be a shame to not do it, right? And, and that sort of kicked it off. So in 2018, Dan and Karam dive into Nira full time, having come a long way from their cooking days back in uni. And they began hunting for a commercial genius to round out their leadership team. And into the breach stepped Jack. So I was introduced to Dan initially by a, a mutual contact, Rob Kowalski at Canva. And at the time I was looking to do something different that had uh, a growth profile to it and was looking more in the kind of growth equity, private equity space, not so much in startup land. And then went and had a chat to Rob and he said, understand you're not looking in this space, but this company I'm invested in, they're focused on the industry you're in and um, they've built a cool product, you should go meet them. Uh, and so I went and met Dan initially, it was gonna be like a 30 minute kind of coffee and it ended up being about two hours of product demo. Um, and I think what I liked off the bat was one, the intrinsic humility to everything, which only compounded when I met Karen. Dan described himself as being quite good at software engineering, which was somewhat comforting. But I think having a pretty good appreciation for the industry and utilities and some of the issues they're trying to tackle even though I understand absolutely nothing about software engineering, uh, it was very clear that the product's capability and functionality was really what the industry needed. And so that was kind of the start of it. And then I met Karim and similar, similar experience as it relates to the kinds of personality types that I prefer working with, which people who are clearly competent, but don't wear it on their sleeve. But because I hadn't really considered working in a startup before I went on a bit of a uh, existential due diligence journey about the things to be wary of when joining a startup um, and what the number one consensus issue was, was founder and co-founder risk. So I spent quite a lot of time with Dan and Karen prosecuting that they weren't narcissists or megalomaniacs or anything in that kind of personality disorder vein. And then they might have been more worried that um, on the other side of the coin, as it relates to my personality, 
Um, but it really took about nine months until they decided that, you know, they would kind of let me join. And I think for me, the product industry piece was pretty clear, but most importantly, that they were nice people to work with. And, you know, one of the things I observe regularly 10 months into this job and having a much greater frame of reference around startups and growth companies in the venture capital space generally is that we are very lucky, I think, to share a common philosophy about how we operate and the kinds of human beings that we like to work with. And even though we all present ourselves differently in certain contexts, uh, I think it comes back to being a pretty easy exercise to interact with each other on, um, even when we disagree on stuff, which is generally resolved in a pretty civilized fashion. And I think more and more as I see and get familiar with other startups and other companies that are further ahead than us, that is hypercritical. And I think we're pretty lucky in that respect. And particularly for me, not knowing the guys for as long as they've known each other, a lot of that is so much you can do diligence and some of it has just been luck. Hearing how the three of them came together, it's clear that they feel an authentic and true alignment with their customers. In fact, in all of my interactions with the team, they have a clear belief that Nero has been co-created with their team and customers. And while we as investors understand that the opportunity is huge, it's the real impact that Nero is having that drives the team. The bigness of it is sort of a bit abstract. For me, the thing that, that really appeals to me is, is the, the impact. What we're working on is like, it is critical infrastructure. It's, it's stuff that affects everyone, like everywhere. And we just had the floods and then we had fires and all these things are affected. I don't want to like draw comparisons to other things because everything has its place and there's many different, you know, valuable things that you can do. But if you look at the bigger picture, just infrastructure, like it, it you know, it's the kind of thing you almost take for granted, but it's something that requires a lot of effort and energy to maintain and to run and it's evolving and things are changing. So we understand infrastructure is critical, but Karam has his own understanding of the industry from his experiences living in India. I had no background in infrastructure, no understanding of the space at all. At least Dan was doing something like I had zero context about it. Um, and and I, I actually remember the critical point at which made me decide to actually join in on this. Um, and look, I mean, again, just looking at my background, I've grown up in India, there was infrastructure that was built for a certain use. And then, you know, as the constraints and the, the demands on that increased, um, you know, like even now, there's massive blockouts, massive issues with the infrastructure that wasn't able to keep up with how things change, right? And, and you know, like you, you hear about electric cars and this and that and all this stuff is happening as an outsider and you assume that uh, people that are in this space have all of this covered and handled, right? But I actually remember going to a conference with uh, with Dan, where most of the uh, New South Wales companies were presenting and they were talking about these problems um, and they were actually genuinely talking about the issues that they had. And it was literally at the end of the conference, I realized that there are massive challenges uh, that the industry is facing in the future, just because things were designed in a certain manner and how things might be operated and used in the future is going to be quite different. Our consumption patterns are going to be different and you know the infrastructure fundamentally has to change. Um, and, and for me, like I have seen massive blackouts in India. I've grown up with all of this stuff, right? Like, so at least I understand that, you know, holy crap, if something like this happens over here, there is, there is a lot of uh, issues that come off the back of that because I've actually lived through some of them. So that's Karam's personal take. 
Here's Jax. We all have to remember that they can't really afford to tinker around with these assets. It's not like tinkering around with a car or tinkering around with a website. They're tinkering around with what is definitionally critical infrastructure. And so if they do something with it too dramatically that impacts what that piece of core infrastructure's primary purpose is, lights go out, water stops running, heat stops flowing. And so the challenge is that, of course, the industry has been committed to embracing digital innovation, embracing digital solutions to move the industry into that space. But it's not something that can be done easily when the role that they play is so pivotal to industry, but also humanity. And so I think when you look at that challenge just inherent to the industry, given the role it plays, but then overlay the fact that they've also been faced with a massive surge in environmental challenges. And so even in isolation, it's a tough transition. But then when you overlay everything that we've seen in the past five to 10 years and how quickly it's escalated and the severity uh, that these events are manifesting, not just from a frequency point of view, but what actually happens when they occur now, it's a very difficult challenge for the industry. And to their credit, they recognize it, they're committed to moving forward. Uh, and I think the role we play is to support them with that transition, to accelerate that transition and to give them a platform that solves or helps solves that kind of broader industry journey, but then helps them diffuse and mitigate against some of the broader environmental challenges, which obviously aren't within their control at all. So you know the passion the team has for the product. You notice how essential software like this is, but when a major utility company uses Nira, I wanted to understand what that actually looks like. Well, if I can summarize it, basically they get a direct high fidelity visibility into what all their assets are doing and the ability to then basically like ask questions like, what if I were to do this? What if I were to do that? Or what if this would happen? What if there was some kind of flood? What if it was a, a hurricane? How, how would that affect my grid, my assets? And there's a huge amount of effort and energy and money and resources being spent just to maintain things like is there some way that that can be optimized if we actually understand how all these components are fitting together and working like maybe we don't need to maintain this bit because we could do this thing this way or maybe we could optimize this approach but if we try this new strategy that might increase uh, the danger is it worth it like you know what is the actual trade-off of trying different things basically if you you know if you, if you imagine these are all physical assets if you use physics and engineering and you can actually have a high fidelity model of what's actually going on, you can you can do these sorts of planning changes, whether it's to improve your business as usual or to to make big changes. And, and as Jack was saying, it's it's scary and difficult to make big changes because things are so critical. And so having a, a clearer insight and being able to predict what effect the changes might happen enables that sort of thing to happen more dynamically with more confidence. Yeah, and I think that captures it really well because back to the point around the role the industry plays, if they get the decision wrong, it's not that they overspent on OPEX by you know 10%, it's that lives can be lost. And so if you don't have a platform or a software solution that gives you that visibility, you have to revert to the binary lowest common denominator which is, all right, we can't understand it with the intricacy and at the scale that we believe our platform enables. Therefore, we have to treat every tree 
as if it's a tree that can set on fire as a function of our network. And every tree that our network interacts with has to be treated like that. Because if we get it wrong on any one tree, the implications of that are cataclysmic. Whereas what we're able to do is enable them to look at every tree, every span, every asset in isolation and optimize across a network level and then at an individual asset level. Where without that visibility, without that capability, they have to solve for what is, in some cases, the blunt force approach, because if they get it wrong, it's pretty dramatic. Where with us, we can help them balance that risk, cost, benefit quandary far more efficiently with far greater accuracy, which enables them to address the binary outcomes, but also optimise the economic and other quantitative outcomes along the way. Optimising the economic and quantitative outcomes is quite a fancy way of saying that IRL, Nira helps their customers save money, people hours on inspections and designing, and ultimately get better at managing their networks. Millions of dollars a year saved in site visits, just because you've got a clearer digital twin kind of picture of what your network is doing. So it's like a risk analysis that one customer had to do that's going to take them three years and they got it done in a couple of months with us. There's, there's a whole bunch of regulatory pressures that we can kind of out of the box just solve. Like, you know, the regulator is coming down very hard on customers for various reasons, and we're able to help them meet those requirements quickly. I mean, you can accurately model everything in your network. If you have two million assets, you can go and inspect every asset one at a time and build an accurate model, but that will take forever and it would be very expensive. So as, as speed, you know, you want to be able to do things quickly and get insights quickly without losing the accuracy trade-off. And that speed isn't just an accelerator around efficiency and whatever cost metric attached to that. It also completely opens up business outcomes that didn't exist beforehand. And so to Dan's example about inspecting 2 million poles individually, what some utilities do is they will replace poles just because they don't have the capability to understand how each pole is behaving or where it's at in its degradation profile. And so they will just replace a pole that might have three to four years more of useful life. And so they're prematurely replacing literally thousands of poles because they don't have the visibility into what is happening at a network level and individual asset level. So now you're giving them an entirely different way to think about that network, which is your repex or you know rectification spend on your network is being step function optimized now that you can actually identify, understand, model every poll, and then say, all right, I'll replace this one in six months, nine months, whatever it might be, as opposed to let's just rip and replace half the networks. We don't really know what's going on and we have to solve for the fact that the network can't go down. Then the other dimension to this is also having everything digitized and editable and, and interactive enables a lot of a lot more collaboration between and, and visibility and understanding and knowledge sharing between groups and also in the whole ecosystem. I guess like for example my wife's company, right? If they want to do work on the network for for the utility or for a, a private customer who needs power run to their thing or whatever it is, they can basically open up the 3D digital twin of the entire network and load up some area and then see what's going on, scope out a job, do the job, submit it. Like it's, it's a far more streamlined process. Dan says a lot of the company culture he wants to build from his work at Helix 
as well as Nira, boils down to him wanting to work with people who are aligned with the team. And the humble, focused way of this team is genuinely very special. I like the feeling that I come to work and and I like everyone that I work with. They feel like friends, you know, and, and we are friends and we hang out and we're building something together and we're, you know, we, we don't, there's no, like, we don't want to think about like, hierarchies and who's in charge and this kind of thing. And hopefully this is, stays as we scale, you know, that it, it's a very almost democratic and team kind of team oriented atmosphere in, in shaping the direction of, of how we go and what we build. And that extends not just within the team, but also to our customers. Like the whole history of this company has been collaborating with customers to understand their needs. And I, and I want to retain that. I don't want to ever turn into a company where it's it's like, you know, the customer says something to a salesperson and the salesperson says a thing to a product person and the product person generates task lists for some coder to add buttons to some UI. The customer empathy um, is very important. And it's really enjoyable as well because you see your thing taking shape and being used. I think it's important that we, we care about what we're building and that we care about the people we work with. We're lucky to have led Nira's Series A, and while the team are quick to say they aren't experts at fundraising, it's still quite fresh. So I asked to get their take on how they approached the fundraising process. I think our philosophy going in was the same going out, and you know, credit to SquarePeg, why why we're fortunate to be partnering with you guys. I mean, I think we're in a good position where we had great existing investors from the seed round. They were very supportive, uh, and so we were in a position where we really got to think about what we were trying to solve for qualitatively and culturally. And we wanted a partner that kind of shared our view on team being important, culture being important. Uh, and Dan, to his credit, uh, prosecuted that to the nth degree in a number of different contexts. And I think that's why we made the decision to partner with you guys. And I think everything about that decision was what we wanted going in and what the experience has been since the round closed and going going forward. I mean, ever since I think it was Tushar who first reached out to us, and I, it was it was very clear that uh, SquarePeg places a lot of emphasis on the people, as in you know the people that they, they work with and the founders and, and all that sort of thing. It, and it's not it's not just spin. Like it's I think in work in now in working with you guys, it's definitely been like you've been incredibly supportive and helpful. It's not like I've done a million fundraisers. So I'm not like a super expert or anything. But I would say talk to as many other startups as you can. That's that's the only way to really hear from other people's experiences. That's how I would go about the fundraise process in general. Yeah, I think the only thing I'd add to that is have a very clear idea of qualitatively what you're looking for. So you know, not to ignore that an obvious part of fundraising is to raise funds, um, but I think that's half the equation. The other half is, all right, who do you want to raise funds with and what's important to you as a company? Because if you're able to clear the first threshold of raising funds, which is you know one of the primary drivers, when you're in a very accelerated growth stage, you want to be partnering people that can help you to the next stage. And so it's like, all right, what do we need to get to the next stage? Don't worry about what happens in stage three or four and who's best positioned to help us with that. And then qualitatively and philosophically and culturally, who are the kinds of people we want to work with? 
And that's going to be different for every company. But if you don't go into the process holding that view, you'll end up going down paths that are dictated purely by the more quantitative side of it, which not to ignore is, you know, an important component, but an optimized raise, I think, solves for two sides of it. And again, it's not like I've done a thousand raises either, but I think we had that approach going in and we had that approach going out and we didn't deviate from guidance or things we're trying to solve for. And I think we've been very lucky in the experience we've had with SquarePeg having gone through that uh, exercise like that. We're very fortunate in that this platform is right on time. And so this platform in existence in its current state 10 years ago is too early. Five years ago is still too early. Five years from now, it's probably getting a bit late. And so we're fortunate that where the industry is at in its evolution cycle and some of the broader kind of extraneous environmental challenges it's facing and what our platform does to address those, it's almost a perfect kind of triangulation of opportunity, need, embracing that opportunity and our platform's ability to address it. And so, you know, timing is more luck than anything. And I think we benefit from that. And it means that the addressable market for our platform is significant and our ability to address it is really just a function of how quickly we want to grow into it. As to what the future holds for Nira, it's all looking pretty exciting. I think when we think about what does five years look like, if we're all happy about it, the company's grown, we've demonstrated that the product and the platform can adapt into a far more diverse spectrum of functionality. Uh, and industry verticals, and we've been able to manage to maintain the culture that we have today. And I think that's the greatest challenge is that as you get bigger, as you scale, your ability to hire with the same discipline, your ability to maintain the personal philosophies that I think we all share and they currently get to enjoy throughout the company. Uh, and I think that's what success looks like. And with that comes, you know, a lot of the obvious ancillary benefits around company scale and financial growth. But I think if we focus on the first part of that, that gives the second part of that, frankly, a greater chance of success. Where in my experience, where I've seen people or companies or business units, whatever it might be, monomaniacally focus on the quantitative side of it, A, it's not as pleasant experience and B, it doesn't solve for a great result. Uh, and so obviously we're highly cognizant of the metric side of it and we focus on that with a pretty strong discipline. But really I think our chance of getting to that is going to be predicated on building and maintaining a strong culture and expanding the product and platform as quickly as we can, geographically uh, and from a functionality point of view. That's it for this week's episode. A big thank you to Dan, Jack and Karam for their time. We are so thrilled to have you and your brilliant team in the SquarePeg portfolio. A reminder that the Nero team are hiring excellent people and that all of the details can be found online. A big thanks to Romy, who I snuck onto this episode for one last week. She starts her new job on Monday and we're so excited for her. We'll see you on Monday for our next edition of All Signal or I'll catch you here next time. Thank you.